Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's an Original Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering episodes five and six of Dark, season two. We're fresh from the trauma of discovering that Adam is Jonas, and we open on yet another sex scene. This time it's Marta and older Jonas, which I suppose rounds out our trio of Marta-Jonas lovemaking. Teen Jonas got a Marnus dream, and I've decided that I'm calling the ship Marnus, so deal with it. Marta got a Marnus dream, and now adult Jonas gets a Marnus dream. Here's hoping that Adam doesn't get one, first and foremost because, oh my god, you know? But also because adult Jonas's dream is unsettling even beyond the large age gap involved there. Because in the dream, black fluid spreads through the veins of Marta's stomach, permeating the area not terribly far from her womb with black tendrils visibly reminiscent of the unstable wormhole. It's horrible and it evokes evil pregnancy imagery, which I fear may be foreshadowing. It might not be a kind of literal pregnancy, but we know that Marta dies on the day of the unstable wormhole's creation, so is she somehow involved in its creation? It does also serve as a reminder for me of the other times we've seen imagery of black infection beneath or upon the skin. First, in Jonas's dreams and hallucinations of his father, and second, in a dream Jonas had about himself. In these dreams and visions, Michael has been consistently drenched in some kind of inky black fluid, and teen Jonas had what appeared to be that same fluid leaking from his ear in one episode. Infection and also cancer are running themes throughout this story, so I think this is supposed to tell me something. I just don't know what yet. In 1921, teen Jonas wakes with Adam watching him sleep. Somehow it's even more frightening than Noah lurking in his bedroom while he slept in the previous episode. I'll note here that I'm still not convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Adam is truly Jonas. There's still a very slight chance of a switcheroo, especially because we get confirmation that Adam is a complete and total liar here. But given the events of this episode and the next, I've been pretty much convinced that Jonas somehow does grow up to be Adam, and I cannot tell you how sad that makes me. Like, I'm angry with the show for even presenting me with the possibility, let alone the outright assertion, that Jonas turns into such an unforgivable monster, as far as we've been shown so far. There's going to have to be a whole hell of a lot of really good explanation in these final ten episodes of the show before I'm willing to get over this. But back in 2020, we're two days out from the apocalypse. Magnus and Marta come downstairs to find Katarina contemplating Mikkel-slash-Michael's impossible school photo, and she tries to tell them what she's discovered. But it's too little too late. Their relationship has been damaged to the point that they aren't interested in hearing what she's got to say, and since she doesn't come right out and say it, they leave without hearing the horrible news about their brother. And since Marta is going to die in two days, it seems that there's a good chance she will never know what happened to him. At Alexander's house, he's on the phone trying to get more information on Clausen. I hope something comes of this, as I have to reiterate just how suspicious I find this guy. But Regina comes to him with yet another potential catastrophe-level problem. Bartosz didn't come home last night, and of course Regina is terrified that her son might be the latest in a long list of missing boys and men. Alexander doesn't seem concerned at all, which I find interesting, but when he realizes just how desperately his wife needs him to comfort her in the moment, he does. I have to say, I find their relationship very interesting. Regina strikes me as a pretty pathetic adult, and I don't necessarily mean that in a judgmental kind of way. I mean that she seems a bit aimless. She doesn't seem to have much to her, short of her self-harming tendencies and a wealth of despair. The only real strength she seems to have had was her spite, and when she's not delving into the depths of that, she seems to rely wholly on Alexander for her emotional needs. 
It's not the best relationship dynamic, and I wonder if Alexander is actually getting what he needs out of this marriage, emotionally speaking, because I've never gotten the impression that this is a reciprocal emotional give and take. It just seems like Alexander gives and Regina takes. I'm not judging, but I am curious. And given that we know Alexander is going to die in two days, who is Regina without Alexander? Can she grow into a person who supports herself emotionally, or is she just going to revert back to being that same zero-confidence, bullied, emotionally abused little girl that she was before she met him? At the power plant, Claudia is contemplating her father's death. It's tomorrow, and she is shirking all her responsibilities in the wake of what she's discovered about time travel and the future. I feel a bit bad for her secretary here, but honestly, it's not really that big a deal, I don't think. It's not like the secretary's going to get fired for Claudia's fuck-ups, though I'd say Claudia's going to lose her job pretty damn soon. Back in 1921, Adam has some silly so-called wisdom for Jonas. He's going on about how people's lives can be divided into three sections, the first before they lose their naivety, the second before they lose their innocence, and the third before they lose their life. It's an obvious parallel to the three faces of Adam and the three faces of Eve archetypes, but I've never heard it put this way, and I can't imagine he's referencing something that exists in the real world. He is the first person that's ever put it this way, I'm sure. I have never heard of the adult phase of the three faces being tied with loss of innocence that is almost always associated with the transition from the youth phase to the adult phase, which is here put instead as the loss of naivety. And actually, in what way are the loss of naivety and the loss of innocence any different in the first place? Maybe this is a translation thing. When we use the phrase loss of innocence in English, we're almost always referring to either the introduction to sexuality, the introduction to grief and death, the introduction to violence and cruelty, or simply the loss of childhood in general. But perhaps that's not what this transition is referring to. Perhaps this use of the word innocence is nothing to do with any of that, and should instead be understood in the sense of innocence being a lack of guilt. That would make the transition from adulthood to old age into a taking on of guilt, a kind of permanent tainting resultant from committing some kind of a crime. Tying in with Adam's choice of moniker, this could certainly be taken as a reference to Genesis and general Abrahamic ideas of sin, but I'm more interested in what it concretely means for our characters. What we're really supposed to be getting from this scene is that teen Jonas transforms into adult Jonas via a loss of naivety, a loss presumably instigated by Jonas's realization in the next episode that Adam has tricked him. And after that, adult Jonas can be expected to turn into Adam through the loss of innocence, aka the taking on of guilt or the committing of some kind of a crime. But what crime does Jonas commit to turn himself into Adam? How am I supposed to look at sweet, heartbreaking teen Jonas and imagine the circumstances in which he becomes this? And for the record, I call this silly wisdom because I think it's a deeply ridiculous way to discuss the three faces concept. Adam delivers his lines like he's quoting ancient philosophers or something, and I was fully expecting him to come out with some kind of a version of that we die twice thing with an added step thrown in. You know the one. First we die when we literally do, and then we die a second death when all memory of us has gone from the world. But no, Adam is on some whole other bullshit about loss of naivety, loss of innocence, and loss of life. And having the loss of life line, of course, being the choice to represent the Adam stage of Jonas's life means to me that my fleeting hint of a theory about what Noah plans to do is going to come to fruition. Noah, like I half suspected, though I'm honestly not sure if I mentioned it in my previous episode, given how much I talked myself in circles last time, I may have just forgotten. I think he's going to try to kill Adam, and I think he's going to succeed. But you know what, I'm going to get to that later, when Claudia shows up again, because I think there's something ridiculously ironic happening here involving her, Jonas slash Adam, and Noah. So put a pin in that.
At the mental hospital in the 80s, Ulrich has just spotted his best chance at getting to Mikkel. He plans to steal a key from an orderly and track down his son. He bashes the unsuspecting orderly over the head, and imagine how badly this is going to fuck up the lives of the rest of the patients. This dude was little threat for 34 years, and pretty well liked, it seems, only to suddenly violently escape and, spoiler, attempt to abduct another child. The cloud of tension and suspicion that's going to settle over this hospital is going to make things really rough for everyone for a while. I'd wager. But back at Egon's house, Egon is befuddled, but pleased, to have Claudia visiting him. Then he's shocked. She invites him to move in with her, tomorrow, and he immediately knows what's up, but not quite. He thinks that she thinks he's going to be dying, like, any day now, and she knows that he is, except it won't be the cancer that kills him. I think, as I said in my previous episode, that he's going to get killed for looking into the White Devil, whatever or whoever that is, and since the next episode is actually called The White Devil, I'd say there's a good chance that I'm right. But back in 2020, Hannah has been abandoned by Jonas, at least for now. Katarina shows up looking for him, because of course she wants to go get Mikkel, but they can't. None of them can travel through time while Jonas is missing, though I think it's very interesting that Marta and Magnus listening to Katarina earlier is what would have made the difference here. Now, I want to reiterate that I don't think there's any way to destabilize the time loop, though Claudia says something later that introduces some wiggle room for me. But follow me for a moment. Katarina's neglect makes Marta and Magnus not listen to her, because that's just how Marta's particular personality responds to that particular stimulus. But if Marta had had a different personality, one that was prepared to accept her mother's olive branch no matter when it was finally offered, then the time loop would collapse. Marta and Magnus would have sat down with their mother to learn about Mikkel's misfortune, and so they would have gone back to Bartos in the caves with the knowledge that their missing brother was trapped in the very time that he takes them to later in the episode. They would have known that they had the chance to save him, and they would have done so unless Bartos managed to stop them. Then the loop would have collapsed, meaning that it had never happened at all. But for the loop to exist in the first place, for us to be seeing this... The loop must never collapse, which means that every single support for it must be perfect. Marta must be the type of girl who wouldn't listen to her mother here. Magnus must be the type of brother who would take his sister's side here. Katarina must be the type of mom who would accept her children's rejection and neglect to simply blurt out what she learned. If any of them are different, if any of their personalities had led them to make a different choice, then the loop would never have existed in the first place. Stable time loops like this are really fun and really fascinating, I guess is what I'm saying. Time travel playing off of determinism is my favorite type of time travel, and I really hope this show sticks the landing, though that would make this a shaggy dog story, or at least I think so. And me, it would probably make me a monster for kind of hoping that it is going to be that kind of a story, that kind of a sad ending, that kind of a we-can't-fight-fate type of thing. But back to the recap. Katarina and Hannah's confrontation is interrupted by Clausen, who has some more shitty things to say, because of course he does. Hannah didn't show up for her interview with him yesterday, which strikes him as suspicious, but he'd be suspicious of her even if she had shown up, because he knows about the payments that Alexander has been giving her. Apparently, since Ulrich never showed back up in 2019 Vinden, she changed her mind on what she wanted out of the blackmail. Instead of destroying Ulrich's life, she's getting paid for work that she isn't performing. She justifies it as kindness on Alexander's behalf, which clearly does not convince Clausen, and he makes this shitty remark about everyone in town sharing secrets and money and lovers before he goes, and honestly, why are you such a buzzkill, Clausen? Because that kind of sounds fucking great. You're jealous, I think. That's it. You're jealous. But at Katarina's house, we find out where Jonas is gone. He's breaking in, and like a complete creep, 
especially given the dream that opened the episode, he goes into Marta's room, her childhood bedroom, I must remind you all, and sits down on her bed. He leaves behind that mysterious coin on a string that we've been seeing throughout this season, and thank goodness the next episode confirms to me that we haven't seen the origin of this coin before, because I truly thought I must have missed something. I suppose that I should find it sweet that Jonas carries this little token of Marta's affection with him for over 30 years, but I kind of don't. It's not even the incest that's getting me, it's the enormous age gap. I get it, she died at 17 or whatever, so she'll always be that age in his memory, but adult Jonas could easily be her dad, not her old boyfriend. It's scaving me out, it really is. Back in 1921, Adam introduces Jonas to the idea of a loophole in terms of the stable time loop, and I truly don't think he's actually proposing that such a thing exists. I think Jonas is misunderstanding him. I don't think he honestly believes for a second that anything he's experienced can be changed. I believe his intention is to take an action in his future that's going to fix things to his liking, but that he wants his past selves to play everything exactly as he did, which is exactly what adult Jonas wanted last season, I'll remind you, and we all saw how that worked out. At the caves in 2020, Elizabeth gets the feeling that someone is watching her in the teens, and she's right. Noah is lurking behind a tree like he's goddamn fucking Slenderman or something, and given what we learn later about the relationship between Noah and Charlotte, I really don't like this. I really don't. Speaking of Charlotte and Noah, though, we cut to the bunker, where Charlotte is asking Jonas about the creepy priest in question. Jonas explains that Noah is Adam's puppet, a Sigmundus time traveler responsible for killing the boys. Charlotte has the distinct sense that this has something to do with her, which I suppose makes sense, given that Elizabeth found the Sigmundus group photo in Townhouse's things, but I think a more reasonable assumption for her and the rest of the characters to make is that it has something to do with Townhouse, not with Charlotte. But Charlotte is concerned that the mysterious identities of her parents have to do with Sigmundus and the time travel shenanigans, and of course she's right. Noah turns out to be her father, and her mother is presumably also someone in Sigmundus, though I don't really have any good theories for who the mysterious mother could be right now, because who the fuck would a man like Noah be interested in? But I imagine that whoever she is, she is almost certainly a Sigmundus member. Or hell, maybe it's Claudia. The show's made mention of Noah being used as Claudia's pawn in the past, so it's entirely possible albeit unlikely. Anyway, Jonas says that he doesn't know who Charlotte's parents are, though he did know Tanhouse, and Charlotte explains that Tanhouse wasn't actually her biological grandfather. He was merely the elderly man who raised her, so she refers to him as her grandfather instead of her father. In the caves, the teens and Elizabeth arrive to interrogate poor abandoned Bartos about his time machine. He refuses to tell them the truth until they make it clear that they're going to leave him in the caves for a second night in a row, and I'm not entirely sure how bad I should feel for him here, purely because I don't know what Bartos does and does not know himself. What are his motives? What does he think Noah and Sigmundus are trying to do? Is he a good kid mixed up in some bad shit, or is he knowingly taking the first steps toward villainy? The motivation makes all the difference here. Now, there's a big clue to the story, I think, in the scene when Bartos powers up the time machine to demonstrate it for his former friends. He tells them that he needs a smartphone to work the machine, and Marta offers hers, showing off her Ariadne wallpaper for the audience. I feel I may need to go back and rewatch her play performance at this point, as I think there are some more clues buried in it than I initially realized. I'd like to theorize at this point that if the knot of our stable time loop is a labyrinth, then Marta is Ariadne. Marta is the one who can lead us out of the maze. She played Ariadne in last season's performance, and her final scene involved her death, just as I fully expect her to die in the final episode of this season. And I think her soliloquy during the play's death sequence might offer some clues as to not only her real death, but also the way to get us out of this mess, if indeed such a way exists. And I think the St. Christopher medal might be another clue. It's essentially a coin on a string. Where else have we been seeing a coin on a string? 
with a prototype device and the dead boys. There has to be some connection there, because the purpose of those coins has been a mystery almost since the very beginning of the show. Maybe they have something to do with the medal, which is itself a symbol of the love that Yona still holds for Marty, even after she's been dead for 66 years. But anyway, back in the 80s, Charlotte again confronts Burned about the incident. His story doesn't make any sense, so he finally gives her the truth. The power plant accidentally confirmed the existence of the Higgs boson, many years before the Large Hadron Collider would confirm it in reality, and Charlotte immediately wants to go public with this information. But Burned is right when he says that it would destroy the power plant if she did so, and he tells her that she must not do that, at least not while he's alive. This does set up the possibility that she bumps him off, though I find that rather hard to believe. I guess we'll see. Elsewhere in 1987, Ulrich tracks down Mikkel, who does not immediately recognize his father, and also doesn't recognize that he probably shouldn't be offering bedraggled strangers his hospitality, at least not without an adult also present. Unfortunately for Ulrich, though, Inez is warned of his breakout while at work, and she immediately fears that this could mean Michael is in danger. Just like that, Ulrich's attempt to reunite with his son is doomed. Back in 1921, Adam is trying to convince Jonas that time is God, but no, Sigmundus is not a religion. And I hate to break it to you, Adam, but an anti-god religion is still a religion. Everything that comes spewing out of Adam's mouth in this scene is religious as fuck. He's a theistic anti-theist, not an atheistic one. And in 2020, Charlotte goes to Tannhaus's place. She finds the blueprint for the time machine, but she's interrupted by the arrival of Noah. Thanks to Elizabeth finding the photo, she immediately recognizes him, and if this were an American show, this is the point at which Charlotte would have pulled her gun. In an American show, Noah would have told Charlotte that he was her father while she threatened his life, and it would have been a very tense moment. Instead, it's this very uncomfortable moment of Charlotte being terrified and Noah being his usual way too intense self, plus a hint of Noah being kind of weirdly vulnerable and Charlotte being emotionally devastated. And so Noah reveals the true reason for the severance of his loyalty to Adam. Noah has been looking for his daughter for who knows how long, and Adam has known that Charlotte was in the 2020 leg of the time loop this entire time. It's an obvious betrayal, and Noah now realizes that Adam has been stringing him along. He was, one assumes, never actually going to help Noah find Charlotte, but what he is going to do is make sure that the apocalypse happens. That's apparently not what Noah signed up for, because, quote, now he knows what he must do. He's going to kill Adam to save everyone not just those in the bunker, who are presumably the only ones who survive within the confines of the time loop. So who's in the bunker when the power plant decommissioning goes wrong? I've got some theories, I suppose. My ideas would really be limited to our primary cast, excluding Marta. I would think that we're going to have a thing of the adults that we've been seeing in the bunker so many times this season are going to be in the bunker when the power plant is decommissioned, and whatever happens, happens. Probably adult Jonas, probably Hannah, probably Charlotte and Peter, maybe Tronti, maybe some others. And our teens, our cast of teens, except for Marta, they might be in the past at this point. It's possible. We've seen them time-traveling at this point. They have Bartaz's time-travel machine. But they could be in the bunker, too. Alexander definitely cannot be in the bunker, because we know that he dies, and Marta can't be in the bunker because we know that she dies. I think Marta and Alexander are going to, for some reason, be at the power plant when whatever happens, happens. But where's Regina, for example, going to be? She could die of cancer by tomorrow, I suppose. That's possible. But I think it would be more interesting if she survives. Again, who is Regina if Alexander is dead? That could be an interesting question for the show to answer. And I kind of hope that it does. But as far as the rest of our characters are concerned, I don't know who else might end up in the bunker. Katarina, I suppose. 
Magnus, maybe. Magnus lives, we know that much. But who else? And why? And why wouldn't they bring more people down there? Do they just so happen to be down there at the time? Or do they get a warning in advance? Surely adult Jonas knows what's going to happen. Surely he brings them down there and keeps them safe. But who does he choose to bring? And why does he choose whoever he chooses? But we'll get our answers soon enough. Back to the show. Before Noah leaves, Charlotte asks about her mother. He doesn't tell her who she is, which I think means that it must be someone we already know, and he implies that Charlotte's mom, whoever she is, is still alive. In the 1980s, the teens plus Elizabeth exit the cave. They don't actually believe that they've traveled through time, but they're going to get their proof soon enough. Bartos tries telling the others what he knows about Noah and time in general, and while Adam said and while Adam said earlier that he was waging a war against time, Bartos seems to understand Sigmundus's goal as ruling over time. It's an interesting distinction. Back at Inez's house, she discovers that Mikkel is missing, and she immediately calls Egon. He of course knows what's happened as soon as he hears of Ulrich's escape, and he knows where Ulrich will be going with Mikkel. It's one of the most heartbreaking things that I have ever seen, and the only thing that keeps me from full-on bawling while I watch this scene is the emotional distance afforded by knowing that these are not real people facing real heartbreak. The devastation here is not something that's actually happening to a real person, but if it were, if this were a plot beat, so to speak, in a documentary, I don't think I'd be emotionally able to recover from this anytime soon. This is far and away the most sympathetic that Ulrich has ever been. He thinks he came so close to rescuing his child and getting the both of them back to their own time, only to be thwarted in the exact same way as he was in 1953, except that the viewer knows he never stood a chance. The portal in the tunnels is closed. He and Mikkel were never going home that way. Of all the places in the entire world where he could have taken Mikkel, this was the first one that people would check and it would never have worked anyway. It is so devastating, and I can hardly blame him for telling Egon that he's going to kill him. Though, given that Egon isn't actually such a bad guy after all, and that he really is going to die tomorrow, I wonder whether Ulrich is really going to kill him, and what that would mean for the show going forward. In 1921 again, Adam is manipulating Jonas with half-truths and enormous lies. I think that the way he lies here does a lot to convince me that he really is Jonas. And Jonas seems to truly believe him too. In fact, Jonas completely believes him, to the point that he falls for Adam's trickery, hook, line, and sinker. But not quite yet. First, we're back in the 80s with Claudia. She's having an employee run some tests on the irradiated materials that Burned claims helped confirm the Higgs boson, though she doesn't tell the employee what he's actually looking for. This could come back to bite her in the ass. And elsewhere in the 80s, Ulrich gets one last heartbreaking moment before he disappears for a while. He sees Magnus, Marta, and their friends standing roadside while he's driven back to the institution. And of course the police don't listen to his protests that he sees his children. He sounds completely delusional, and he's going to be lucky if he hasn't just ruined his life all over again. And if that doesn't get you, take a moment to imagine what he must be thinking here. He now knows that his youngest son is trapped in 1987, and he's not sure how it happened. Seeing Magnus and Marta here too? What an utter mindfuck. He probably thinks that they're also trapped there, or else he's going to start believing that maybe he really has finally cracked. Back at Hannah's house in 2020, Jonas is finally ready to grapple with just what kind of a woman his mother is. He asks her, not for the first time, if she ever loved Michael, and when she's asked whether she would choose Michael and Jonas over Ulrich, she doesn't answer. Which is an answer, if only by way of implication. At the caves, Marta and the others have returned to their proper time, they abandon Bartas, though they keep his time machine, and in the 80s we get confirmation that Inez is indeed drugging Michael. What in the world is it with the moms in this show? 
Back in 1921 again, Adam shows Jonas something horrifying. It's a second unstable wormhole, one purposefully created by Sigmundus so that they can time travel. It is the first form of time travel that we see, in fact, that breaks the 33-year rule. How does it break the rule? I couldn't tell you. It's questionable world-building, but alright, fine. In any case, Adam claims that with it, Jonas can visit any moment in time that he likes, and that Jonas can use this visit to break the time loop. He's obviously lying here, because the only other option, besides lying, is that the writers are going to take a sledgehammer to their own world-building instead of just tweaking it slightly with this exception to the 33-year rule. Jonas cannot go back to what he thinks is the beginning of the loop, that being the day before Michael's suicide, and fix everything by making sure that his dad doesn't die. If he's right and Michael's survival would mean that Michael never went into the caves, that would mean that Michael would never exist as an adult in 2019 to commit suicide in the first place. Changing what happens to Michael wouldn't be an act of self-sacrifice on Jonas's part. Instead, it would prevent the time loop from ever existing at all. Stopping Michael's suicide would mean that there was never a Michael's suicide to stop. From what Dark has showed us so far, solving things this way isn't possible. Whatever the solution is, if such a thing even exists, it's not a matter of finding the right date within the time loop to make the loop collapse. The beginning, as Michael calls it, cannot be within the loop. Personally, I don't believe a solution exists. Maybe that will change for me as I get through these last ten episodes, but for now, I don't think the hypothetical beginning really matters. I suspect there's no changing anything. I fear that the apocalypse is inevitable, and I think our characters must merely learn to go on from here. If I have to make a guess on what the beginning is, though, my money's on Noah and Agnes. I'd suggest trying to take their parents out. Since so much of the cast within the time loop is descendant from Noah and Agnes, I think removing their parents might remove the knot. But given the way that a stable time loop works, going back to snip the knot before the thread can form the knot just means that you pull that part of the thread into the knot. After all, how can you go back in time and kill Noah and Agnes if killing them would mean that you were never born? It's a paradox, and so far we've only seen paradoxes bring things into existence. In Dark, we've never seen a paradox wipe something out. But on to the next episode. We open on Jonas waking in the morning. Unlike his usual waking scenes, this one is peaceful. He's not yet traumatized, meaning that this is Jonas as we've never known him. His dad is alive, his romance with Marta is just beginning, and he's happy. Given where he ends up, whether that means 2020 Jonas or future Jonas or Adam, it's really hard to see him like this, right before everything goes so horribly wrong. Today, we learn, is the day of Katarina and Ulrich's anniversary, and we learn later that while Michael usually attends, he only manages this because he doesn't remember most of his previous life. It's only as he approaches his death that the memories are starting to resurface, which is an interesting point, as is Mikkel's illness on the day of his future self's suicide. And he doesn't attend Ulrich and Katarina's party because he started remembering being their son. We get our first real glimpse here of what Hannah and Michael's marriage was like, and I must admit, I don't like what I see. Knowing that Michael is Mikkel just makes this whole thing incredibly gross to me, and I am squicked each and every time that she puts her hands on him. I know that technically they grew up together, and the timey-wiminess here means that there's not really anything wrong with their relationship, but it feels disgusting to watch. It gives me traumatic flashbacks of the Connor-Cordelia relationship, though this isn't quite as bad as that. It's all in the same vein of ew. But in the 2019 version of the church, which confirms for me that a 2019 version of the church does in fact exist, Jonas emerges to go wreak some havoc on the timeline, or at least he's going to try. At Ulrich's house, Ulrich is trying to pressure his wife into having sex even after she says multiple times that she doesn't want to. It's really pretty upsetting, as is the implication later that he only started up his affair with Hannah because Katarina wasn't allowing him to fuck her whenever he liked. 
Thankfully, Mickle interrupts before this can escalate into anything rape-adjacent. He's covered in a rash that his mother takes one look at and announces must be rubella, and I'll admit that I had to look up what the hell this disease actually was. I'd heard of it, sure, but it was declared eliminated from the American continents back in 2015, and I've never actually heard of anyone getting it in my personal life. I guess it's still hanging around in Germany, though, so go get vaccinated, I guess? Katarina makes a kind of playfully scolding comment here. You had to get this today of all days or something like that. And I just want to point out that this is the kind of thing that seems innocuous from a parent's point of view, but can really be harmful to a child if they for some reason happen to internalize it. So you know what? Please think before making comments like this. I know it doesn't sound like it should be a big deal, and I probably sound silly for even saying this, but when it comes to children's psyches, especially if we're talking about neurodivergent kids, this kind of offhand comment can be a lot more hurtful and impactful than anyone would ever intend. So just be careful with that. At Alexander's house, a headline about an unsolved murder catches his eye. It happened 33 years ago, right around the time he came to town, and considering that he showed up with that gun and this article seems to upset him, I assume that he must have killed someone before he came to town. The real Alexander Kohler, perhaps. I do find it interesting, though, that there were apparently two perpetrators of this crime. If one of them is Alexander slash Boris, then who's the other? Does it have anything to do with this white devil, or would that assumption be barking up the wrong tree? At Charlotte's house, Peter comes home to find his wife in a funk. It's unclear what exactly their relationship status is at the moment. It appears that his affair has already been revealed, and that he's pretending that it ended. Or perhaps he's being honest, and it really has ended, only for him to pick it back up later. He gets kind of a shitty dig in, though I can't pretend that I don't think it's an accurate one. Peter more or less blames his affair on Charlotte, telling her that he gets nothing from her, and honestly, he doesn't appear to be lying. They've been getting along since the truth came out about the time travel, but before that, they didn't even seem to really like each other. What did they ever get out of this marriage? She was dodging his calls for the entirety of the first season, and she won't even say a single word to him here. What was their relationship like before he strayed? Because honestly, if a relationship is really falling apart to this extent, I don't really blame whichever partner decides to stray. This doesn't appear to be like Ulrich's situation where he wants to have his doting wife and his sexy side chick too. This looks like Peter and Charlotte's marriage is ending because neither of them is satisfied in the relationship, but neither of them actually has the nerve to end it. In a lot of relationships like this, cheating is the thing that triggers the breakup, which is what both partners really need. The cheating isn't great, but if it ends the bad situation, breakup via cheating isn't an ethical decision to make, and it's definitely the cowardly way to overcome that kind of inertia. But I understand why it happens, and I get it far more than I understand what Ulrich is doing. At the lake, Bartosz is hanging out with Magnus and Marta and telling a story about a drowned woman. I wonder if this is foreshadowing of some kind, or if it's merely meant to show us the interplay of their friendships before everything went to shit. In any case, we get to see how Marta and Jonas interact with the specter of Michael's suicide hanging over them. They're a fine little couple, as far as teenagers go, and I have no protests, really. Again, it's not as if it's terribly likely that there will be any horrible genetic consequences here. Incest really only tends to become a significant problem after multiple generations of inbreeding within a family tree, and second-degree incest like Marta and Jonas's relationship is not as problematic as first-degree incest. Honestly, I'm fine if him being her secret nephew and her being his secret aunt doesn't actually stop them. And she's going to be dead in two days anyway, so... Maybe have some fun while you can. On a more serious note, though, this is the scene when Jonas finds the coin we've been seeing all season. To my surprise, it's not actually a coin, per se. It's a St. Christopher medal or medallion. And one has to wonder why Marta knows that, given that Mikkel has told us in the past that Ulrich's household is an atheistic one. 
But at the familiar road by the power plant, 2020 Jonas talks to 2019 Katarina Ulrich and Mikkel. Ulrich is apparently shipping Marta and Jonas, which is cute, I guess, but I mostly want these adults to actually process the look on Jonas's face. The boy looks traumatized. When he turns down a ride with that look on his face, maybe ask a few more questions. Where are you going? Are you okay? Would you like a hug? Like, he doesn't look like he's doing well, and I need someone to notice. Back at the lake, Magnus and Francisca have an awkward scene. He thinks she's drowning, only to realize that she's actually skinny dipping, and he runs off like a doofus. Francisca smiles as he goes, making it clear that she's pleased with this development, and I've truly had enough of these two. Less teen romance, please. But no, elsewhere in the teen romance world, Jonas and Marta are having a moment, and Marta has this interesting line about sometimes getting the feeling that something is about to happen. Given that the last time she said something like this, Mikkel disappeared, it's a fascinating plot beat. She had this weird feeling when Mikkel disappeared, like I said, which was an extremely important point in the time loop, and she has it again now that Mikkel is about to kill kill himself, which is such an important point in the time loop, that Jonas thinks preventing it will prevent everything else. Does this mean something about Marta? Does this fit in somehow, perhaps metatextually, with the ongoing connection between Marta and Ariadne? Is she, perhaps her memory, perhaps her intuition, perhaps just the girl herself, going to lead our characters out of the time loop? Maybe. But I don't see how. Anyway, Jonas and Marta's impending kiss is prevented by Magnus's interruption, which prompts Jonas to realize that he's supposed to be at Inez's house right now. So 2019 Jonas runs off, and then 2020 Jonas swoops in to sort of tell her goodbye without telling her goodbye. Thank the gods, she actually notices that something's wrong with him. Though this is honestly a pretty creepy thing for Jonas to do to her, it's not really fair to put her into this situation, especially since he knows what he's going to do to her in his past and her future. But he kisses her and tells her that they're perfect for one another, and apparently he has no qualms about using the exact words that he uses later when he specifically tells her that they're not right for each other and breaks things off with her. But this scene honestly makes me wish I liked Marta more, because I really like teen Jonas, and I want him to be happy, and I want him to be happy with a love interest that I feel actually deserves him, and right now, I haven't yet been convinced that Marta is it. She's far and away the best candidate, don't get me wrong, and she could grow into an awesome character in the back half of the show overall, but I'm still pretty sure that she's going to die within the next two episodes, so there's not much time for that left, now is there? But back at Hannah's house, Michael is watching himself out the window. Hannah, too, seems to notice for the first time that Mikkel looks a whole hell of a lot like Michael did as a child, but she dismisses it as deja vu. It's interesting to note here that there is a rational explanation for this resemblance that she could have jumped to. She could have assumed that while she starts up an affair with Ulrich, maybe Michael was having an affair with Katerina. It's gross to suggest such a thing, and it's obviously not the real explanation. But if I were Hannah... The thought would cross my mind. Thankfully, though, she seems to discount the resemblance entirely. Michael, though, doesn't dismiss it quite so easily. He accidentally scares Mikkel in his attempt to spy on the boy, and Mikkel's, of course, right to be scared. Michael's actions here make a certain kind of sense, given that the situation from his perspective is overwhelming and disorienting as hell. But he looks like an absolute pervert from the perspective of anyone who doesn't know that he and Mikkel are the same person. So, after leaving the lake, Bartos awkwardly tries to flirt with Marta. She's clearly not interested in being hung up on Jonas, but Bartos is such a fucking goober once again that I feel bad for him. And at least Marta seems flattered by his compliments. In a world without Jonas, they might have really been a thing. But that's assuming that a world without Jonas wouldn't have been some kind of an unlivable hellscape, as Claudia seems to want us to believe. 
At the power plant, Alexander calls Voller. He's still worried about the unsolved murder case, and he wants Voller to find out something for him. We don't get to find out what it is that he wants him to find out, and while there's a small possibility that Voller could be the other perpetrator involved in the murder, I rather doubt it. Though there does seem to remain the possibility that Alexander's request could have something to do with his injured or missing eye. So keep an eye on that. Then we're on to Katarina and Ulrich's party. Marta and Jonas's meeting is awkward for the audience. They don't know it, but there's a misunderstanding between them. Marta has had this romantic moment with him before she invites him up to her room, but he has no idea what she's talking about when she alludes to it. As far as he knows, they had a near kiss at the lake, and then they had sex that night. It's certainly something. Now, I was surprised to see Charlotte at this party, though of course she had told us earlier in her scene with Peter that she would be attending. It's just that I have a hard time picturing Charlotte hanging out with Katerina and Hannah beyond the confines of our time travel shenanigans. We never saw them together as teens, as far as I can recall. Elsewhere, with a storm brewing, Jonas goes to visit his father. It's a hard scene. At first, Michael doesn't understand what's wrong with Jonas, though at least he actually notices that something's wrong. But once the truth starts coming out, the situation gets truly heartbreaking. Once the hits start coming, they just keep coming harder and harder. Jonas, knowing about what happened to Michael, opens up the floodgates for Michael. Then Jonas tells Michael that Michael is going to kill himself, which he has no intention of doing, thus making it clear to the audience that Adam indeed lied about what Jonas is supposed to do here. And then we get the awful reveal that Jonas was the one who took Michael into the caves and abandoned him in 1986. It is so devastating to hear Michael recount what happened to him, especially with the context of who Jonas is for him. Not only a big brother figure from his childhood, but also his son. And that he's lived his entire life wondering why Jonas betrayed him like that. My heart hurts. This is second only to the scene with Ulrich. But Michael is the one who pieces things together not Jonas. He realizes that Jonas is only there to make sure that Michael does indeed kill himself, not to prevent it. And after a little bit of religious nonsense that tells us Michael converted to Christianity sometime after becoming Inez's son, he breaks out that Michael is only a small part of a large cancer line that we've heard before, slightly altered. Then in walks Claudia, and I'll admit I was stunned to see her here. Surprise bitch indeed. She tells Jonas that she's waited a long time to meet him again, and when he accuses her of working with Adam, she claims that she is the darkness to Adam's light. Noah, of course, tells people the exact opposite, and I'm starting to suspect that all three of them are actually just a bunch of nincompoops, but I'll get to that thought in a minute. Claudia claims that Adam doesn't want to fix things, he wants to destroy them forever. She says that Jonas is the only one who can put an end to all of this, and it seems that she specifically means teen Jonas. She calls it a war against himself, and Jonas protests that the simple solution is to make sure that he's never born. Which brings us to what I think is the most important line in the show so far. I've seen the world without you, says Claudia. It isn't what you're expecting. What the entire fuck does that mean? More importantly, though, how the hell has Claudia seen a world without Jonas? How is that possible? How does that claim, assuming she isn't lying, fit in with the construction of the world of dark? It breaks the rules that the writers have given us so far, those rules essentially boiling down to the inherent fact that time traveling does not change anything. Anything you do while time traveling is something that has already happened. Your actions just become part of the whole, they don't unmake it. So if Claudia isn't lying, and she really has seen a world without Jonas, how is that possible? Could we be dealing with a much larger, more cosmic story than I realize? If Adam's goal is to destroy and rebuild, maybe he's not just talking about human civilization on Earth. Maybe he's talking about the universe itself. Could our story really be on that grand a scale? 
It seems unlikely right now, but maybe it is. Maybe Claudia has seen other timelines by virtue of seeing some other iteration of the universe. If we can't change what happens in this one, and it doesn't seem like anyone can, then maybe she's seen another one. And that one, the one without Jonas, is worse? Or does she mean something else and she's deliberately misleading Jonas here? Or is she outright lying to trick him into doing what she wants, just like Adam did so recently? We know she's been accused of manipulating him, after all, and perhaps this is the moment that those accusations cite. But back to the party. The storm is still brewing, but the sky is just about to break. Hannah and Ulrich bond while Katerina cares for a feverish Mikkel. It's their 25th wedding anniversary, and while Katerina is caring for their son, Ulrich is fucking her best friend. I am suddenly reminded of just how much of an asshole he is as the rain starts to pour and Ulrich and Hannah's affair begins. Elsewhere in town, a somewhat more sympathetic husband is also stepping out on his wife. Peter is visiting our sex worker, who still, still, still does not have a name, while Francisca spies. That's not going to end well. And upstairs from Ulrich and Katerina's party, Jonas and Marta have sex for the first time. That, apparently, is the mysterious thing that happened last summer that we heard about last season. 2020 Jonas, meanwhile, leaves his father behind to write the letter and to kill himself. This whole show is just about breaking Jonas, isn't it? Just absolutely destroying that poor boy. I feel bad. I feel complicit somehow. This sucks. But he follows Claudia into the caves. And that's the last we see of them for now. But back in 1921, or back at the Sycamunda's headquarters at the very least, Adam lingers over the St. Christopher medallion. There's a woman who looks a hell of a lot like Helga's mom, though I don't think it's meant to be her, and there's a man who's telling Adam that he should have told Jonas more of the truth. This man, apparently, is Magnus. And how the entire hell did he get involved? Where in the world is all of this going? And how emotionally destroyed am I going to be when we finally reach the end? So, now I do want to double back to one thing that I mentioned earlier. Like I said, I think there's something ridiculously ironic happening here involving her, Adam, slash Jonas, and Noah. As far as all of them have said, they are all attempting to escape the time loop. Adam specifically says, escape this hell. And Noah has implied that he wants to change things, and Claudia has said that she wants to change things. But each and every one of them has said that the other is lying. Every single point of this triangle has turned against the other two points. And they all seem to think that all of them are purposefully trying to keep the time loop stable, and just telling people that they want to change things. But here's the thing. I think Adam, Noah, and Claudia are all genuinely trying to achieve the same thing. But it's because they all think that the others are lying about their motives that leads them to foil each other's plans, and so no one gets what they want. If any of them would focus on what they're trying to do instead of what the other three are trying to do, maybe somehow they could change things. But instead of focusing on their motive, their will to change things, they seem to each be focusing on the assertion that the other two are lying. And so they're trying to stop the other two, which means that they're foiling the other two's attempts to change things. It seems like there are three points of the triangle here. They're the three points of the triketra. And somehow, they're all working against each other. And perhaps I should be thinking of the triketra as something of a Venn diagram here. A triketra does not work the same way as a threefold Venn diagram. There isn't overlap between two 
points. In a trichedra, there is only that one overlap in the very center where all three points meet. And perhaps that's the thing here. Perhaps, if there is a way to get out of this time loop, perhaps we should be thinking of this as a trichetra. Perhaps we need to find the point where Adam and Noah and Claudia all overlap. We need to find the core of their motivation. We need to get them to trust that they all are kind of working towards the same goal, which again, I think they are. I think they just don't believe that they are. So perhaps buried deep within all of their motivations and all of their doings, there is something, there is some overlap there that could get us out of this. But again, I remain pretty convinced that there isn't a way out at all. Short of ending time altogether, short of ending the universe as we know it, the only other option I can think is getting to the other end of the time loop and just going on from there. So maybe that's going to be our end. Maybe everything gets destroyed. Maybe we have to start over. Maybe we have to start human civilization over in the future. I don't know. And I'm very, very fascinated to find out what the creators, what the writers, what the showrunners have planned, and whether or not I find it convincing. Because this is a story that it's going to be very hard to have a satisfying conclusion to, from both an emotional and a logical standpoint. So with that said, I now have only two episodes left to watch in season two, and I'm going to be covering those, of course, in my next episode. But... At the time of the recording of this particular episode, I'm going to immediately go watch those two shows. So if you're interested in joining me for that, you're going to want to head over to my Patreon. By the time you're hearing this publicly, you won't be able to join me for the live watch, but you can join me for the live watches of future shows if you're interested. But though you've missed the live watch, you still have the opportunity to view my reaction to the show. If there's something really shocking that happens in the penultimate and final episodes of season two of Dark, you can watch me react to it for just $5 per month on Patreon. And if you only want to sign up for one month and then bounce, that's fine too. But if you are interested in sticking around, $1 and up patrons will have access to polls determining what it is that I cover. So if you're interested in any of that, head over to the Patreon, check it out. If you're not interested in that or you don't have the funds to spare at the moment, you may be interested in leaving a review or a rating over on your favorite podcatcher, or you may be interested in telling a friend about the show. Any of that is very much appreciated, and I hope you are enjoying this podcasting experience as much as I am. And... I hope you're going to be back with me again, and I hope you're going to join me soon for my coverage of episode 7 and episode 8 of Dark, because I cannot tell you how much I am looking forward to it. And in 2020, Tan House goes to Tan. Tan House goes to Tan House's place, that's a thing I just said.